1947, Jay's dad. What's his name again? William. William. William, and, and your mom's name? Grace. Grace. They're like, we're going to do the best thing for our kids. So they take Jay and Nathan, and they put them on a ship, and they send you over to India. Mm-hmm. Of all places. <laughs> <laughs> And well, did you know how to speak the language? No, I did not speak English. I did not speak Hindi. What language did you speak? I, I spoke a little bit of Farsi. I, I spoke Farsi fluently. I spoke Assyrian fluently, but that was about my, the limit of my languages. Hi friends and welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. On this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Julius or Jay Mirza. And as you heard in the introduction, Jay's parents sent him from Iran to India when he was 12 years old so that he could get a better education. Jay's story has many twists and turns and it's captured in his book, The Assyrian Dream, which you can find on Amazon.com. The book actually retells his story and his father's story and he's such a fascinating man. He's the kind of Assyrian that I aspire to be like. He's a good man who's been involved with his community. He has two children and you'll get to hear more about his story and I'm going to play the interview. But first, if you know someone that should be on the Assyrian Podcast, please shoot me an email at AssyrianPodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to share this episode, rate us and review us on the iTunes store or wherever you listen to the Assyrian podcast. It really does help. Enjoy the interview with the one and only Julius Mirza. Parents are originally from Iran. Yes. What village in Iran? Okay, my, my mother was born in Ada, my father was born in Abajalu, and my grandmother who lived with us was born in Spurhan. So uh, my background is rather diversified in, in terms of uh, my relationships of, of the place of birth for my parents and so forth. Can and we then, share your age? Would you feel yeah. comfortable with that? No, no problem. Yeah, I'm 83 years old. Okay. I was born in uh, 1934. And... Um, in the in the city of Kermanshah, and uh, what's interesting is that the American Presbyterian missionaries mm-hmm. came to Iran back in the 1850s or so, plus or minus, and they established their missions at locations where they thought would be most desirable from a standpoint of view of operations and uh, possibility of converting Muslims to Christians. But they found out that the Assyrians were actually Christians even before they came to that country. So they established a mission in Kermanshah, and along with that came doctors who built a hospital over there, and of course the, 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 the church that was also established over there. So my parents used to work for the Anglo-Iranian oil company in Kermanshah. They already spoke English because when they grew up in Urmi, they studied English under the direction of Presbyterian schools. So they were actually students in those schools that the American Presbyterian missionaries set up. Yes. And so, um, while in Kerman Shah, my father used to work for the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which was a compound about uh, perhaps five, six miles out of town. And what did he do for them? He was, uh, initially he started off in Abadan, and he used to work in... Uh, what, in the, what is, where is Abadan? Abadan is a, a port on the... Uh, 
Shuttle Arab River, which is Shuttle Arab, is the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Oh, okay. When they come together, it's known as Shuttle Arab, and from, that's about 40 miles from where they, the the confluence occurs until you hit the Persian Gulf. And the city of Basra, which a lot of people have heard about, yeah. is the only port that Iraq has, and 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 Iran had a port called Khoramshar, which was also located on the same river but they both had access uh, shipping access to the Persian Gulf so my father used to work for in, in Abadan which was uh, Ira- uh, oil was discovered in Iran in 1908 I think at uh, Nafta Shah and then uh, they had to build a refinery so they, the British built a refinery in Abadan in order to ship the oil through the Suez Canal mm-hmm. to England uh, because the Industrial Revolution forced people to use uh, oil as a resource. Uh, coal coal was beginning to fade out slowly. Oil was the new new resource for energy. And so they had to protect that that that, uh, that oil in some in many ways and uh, in, including the Suez Canal which which was the main artery between the Mediterranean Sea and the uh, and the uh, uh, Indian Ocean which eventually leads into the Persian Gulf. So my father used to work for the British Oil Company in Abadan initially. He was a clerk. Okay. He, uh, this is in 1929 when he started to work for them. And then from there he uh, he became interested in uh, accounting. And uh, he, so he moved up to the accounting department. And then, and then later on he was promoted to go to, go to uh, Kerman Shah, which is, Kerman Shah is about perhaps uh, 400 miles north of Abadan from the Persian Gulf and he he still was for the same company but he he then became an administrative assistant to the manager of the uh, oil company in Kermanshah. Shah so he he had the the skills of uh, he spoke English he spoke Farsi he spoke Assyrian and he spoke a smattering of Turkish and this is called uh, Azerbaijan Turkish rather than the Istanbul Turkish (laughs) because it's on the eastern side of uh, Turkey so uh, the British enjoyed that relationship because, the, the, number one, he was a Christian. They knew that. He was an Assyrian Christian. So they, they trusted him more so than somebody else that they were not familiar with. And having been almost a linguist, he was very helpful to them in order to resolve uh, a, a conversation issues that may not be clear to some, somebody. Well, all the managers were British, British people. So if they didn't understand what was going on, then they would probably contact my father to, to help him understand the relationship or translate for them. So, how, how did he end up going to the American Missionary School in the first place? Well, the, the, uh, he was a, a, young, a young man. Uh, he was born in 1904. Then when the uh, First World War started, the Russian army was in, in Iran at the time. And uh, then the, the Turks... The, the Kurds and the Iranians were actually against the Christians in, in, that, in that part of the world. And, and, and the Syrians and Armenians were the only Christians in that part of the world, so to speak. So and that's when like the Assyrian genocide happened, yes, right? Yes. So the Americans later on established uh, their schools. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my, my, uh, my parents went to their, the, the Christian mission schools. And they learned the basic English, reading, writing, arithmetic. There were not colleges, although there was one, I understand there was a place called Qalla, where uh, you went into a higher level of education beyond high school. Mm-hmm. But he got his education basically from 
American missions, his secondary education, I would say, from the American missions. So your dad, he gets this amazing education. He learns how to speak English. Mm -hmm. Then the oil boom happens, mm -hmm. and the British view him as their godsend because he's a good guy. He's comes from good good values as far as they understood. He's you know Christian. Mm -hmm. He speaks the language, speaks all the different languages, and then, so he's there, and then he meets your mom down the line? Well, he knew her as a child, but the, the marriage relationship was arranged between my grandmother, which is my dad's mother, and uh, my mother's uh, mother, the other grandmother that I never met. Mm -hmm. And uh, the relationship was a good one for, for my mother and father, you mm -hmm. know, because she also went to the Presbyterian mission schools and became a nurse. Got it. So uh, they were truly in love with each other. It I, wasn't, think, yeah. I think so. I think so. But of course, there was no such thing as honeymoons and uh, right, right. And just, it was uh, obligation and it was duty and it was yes the way things ought to be. Yeah, right. Yeah. So your dad gets the job and he's married now. He's doing great. And you're born, and your brother is born. They have two kids, right? Nathan is your brother. No, and I have, I have a sister, Sonia, also. Okay. So, yeah, she she was born ten years after me. She was born in in forty four. Is the she the youngest? She's the youngest. Okay. Yeah. I was born in thirty four. My brother was born in thirty six, and so there was three children in our family, yeah. and I'm the oldest. You're. This is one of the parts that when I was reading your book, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You're fifteen years old, and your parents. Put you on a plane or a ship? Yeah, no, I was 12 years old. 12, years, 12 old. years old. Okay. When Even my brother was nine years old uh -huh. when my father uh, put us on a ship to go from Basra to go to Bombay uh, through the Persian Gulf. We first stopped in Karachi, which today is Pakistan. And then from there we, we uh, went on to Bombay. We disembarked in Bombay. And took a train across India. What year is this? This is 40, 1947. Okay. 1947. Jay's dad. What's his name again? William. William. William and, and your mom's name? Grace. Grace. They're like, we're going to do the best thing for our kids. So they take Jay and Nathan and they put them on a ship and they send you over to India. Mm -hmm. Of all places. <laughs> <laughs> And well, did you know how to speak the language? No, I did not speak English. I did not speak Hindi. What languages did you speak? I, I spoke a little bit of Farsi. I, I spoke Farsi fluently. I spoke Assyrian fluently, but that was about my the limit of my languages. So in India, uh, I, this was a British boarding school. So I had to learn English from, from day one. I, had, I knew nothing about the, the language, you see. <laughs> So, what education had you had until then? Like I, up I to was, age I had gone. I was twelve years old, so I would be what the f uh, fourth grade or something. Did like the that. missionaries? Uh, no, this was a public school in Kermanshah. It was a it was a school run by the government. However, the uh, the principal of the school uh, in Assyrian we call it Rabbi Emma, and uh, she. Uh, and her last name was Ayub Khani. Female principal. Female huh? principal, yes. And uh, she um, she was the principal of this particular school. And uh, in those days, school uniforms were very common. You had to wear certain types of clothes to go to these schools. So I went to this public school until I was 12 years old. However, on Sundays, we used to go to the uh, Presbyterian Church in Kermanshah 
because uh, that was the, and then there was also a Roman Catholic church also in town, but we did not go to that. We went to the, the mission, the, the Presbyterian church. And then, then from that stage, and then, then after he took us to India, my father, uh, my brother was nine, I was 12. We didn't know it, but we weren't going to see my parents for three years later. Because three of, full years, three of full no years, we did not see our parents. So in that time frame, we forgot to speak Farsi, mm -hmm. we forgot to speak Assyrian. All we spoke was English, and that's how you learn English. Because <laughs> <laughs> what about with each other? Did you guys uh, see each other? Well, we only saw each other uh, on weekends because the school was broken into a junior school. And Psychologically, what was happening? I mean, <laughs> as a 12-year-old boy. You, I don't think we realized what was happening. You didn't know what was I happening. I didn't know. You were like, this happens to everyone. Yeah. Everyone gets sent to well, India when I, they're 12. I felt, I felt that the, the school was such a disciplined organization mm -hmm. that you, you ran by the numbers. The educational part of your education, you, you went to class in the mornings, then you played sports in the afternoons. And if you got out of line, you were told to go see the headmaster, and you were caned. And, and you found out after a while that it didn't pay to... Did you ever get caned? Oh, many times. <laughs> yes. Yes, you have, to, you have to realize that the school was called St. Paul's School. It was a Church of England school. Anglican school. Anglican school. Yeah. And it was located in Darjeeling, India. And the elevation of our school was 7,600 feet. Now, water was always a, an issue over there, even though in the monsoon season we got 140 to 160 inches of rain a year, there was no way to, to store this water and use it in, in the tent when you needed it. So as a result, we had a quadrangle in between all the school buildings and there was raised plots of grass and the students were not allowed to walk on the grass. You oh, could okay. only walk on the concrete walkways. And if you were caught walking on the grass, you would kill the grass. So as soon as you were caught walking, you would be told to go see the headmaster. Maybe this is get, your livelihood is on the line if yeah, you're going to walk yeah, on that yeah. lawn. Oh, yeah. And there were many other rules you have to follow. And, and the severity of the, how many strokes you got based on how bad you were. And if it got to the point where you went there three and four times, they threw you out of the school. They just didn't want you there. You were, you were a bad omen. Mm. So, uh, was it a boys' school? It was an all-boys school, yes. And uh, there were many other private schools in Darjeeling also, but there were girls' schools too. There was one called St. Michael's School, which was for girls only. Then there was a St. Joseph's School and College, which actually took you from kindergarten all the way through uh, college-level mm -hmm. schools. And uh, although ours was kindergarten through uh, high school, uh, but yet they broke the school into two segments, junior school and senior school. And that's the reason why I didn't see Nathan mm -hmm. that often. I saw him in, in chapel or sometimes during meals. And when we were seated in the, uh, the dining hall by the houses you belong to, we were like, I was in Hastings house. These were all the names of generals that served right. in India. And the British were in India about 260 years. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of history that predominated what was going on in the school. And so there was Lawrence House, Clive House, Hastings House, and I forget the other one. Uh, uh, there was four houses. And so we would all go at, at different times to have our meals, and occasionally I would see my brother at mealtime. But again, he was nine and I was 12, so our thought process was probably a little different from mm -hmm. each other because he had his own friends and I had my friends. And uh, so it was a very unique situation. and I. 
as you, a lot of people have asked me, well, didn't you miss your parents? Well, of course I missed my parents, but the, the programs were set up in such a way so that you were busy all the time. You didn't have to sit down and cry about things because, oh, I'm so far away from home. What's happened to my mother? What's happened to my... We didn't have those opportunities. And then... The so course, it was academically, it was totally rigorous. It well, was nonstop work, homework, all that exactly. kind of stuff. We, and then we had to write a letter home every week. In those days, we didn't have telephones, we didn't have airplanes mm -hmm. and things to go home. But, you know, we were about 3,000 miles from home. And so uh, everything was done by mail. It took a letter 30 days to get from Iran to Darjeeling. 30 days. Well, once, the, once you wrote these letters, and then they, we would get a response back one week. So that our, we would get a letter once a week. Oh, but my it would, gosh. But it was, that's the only way you could communicate. So chronologically, you're going to be hitting some issues because okay. you're responding to something you already know the answer yes, to. Yes, exactly. So you had to play that game of yeah, guessing when yeah. it's going to show up. Yeah, so anyway, but, that, but the other interesting... See, now, these days, we just send a text. Yeah. And, it's, <laughs> and people get it right away. Although sometimes, of course, if you don't have good reception, you have yeah. to wait a yeah. minute or two well not 30 days yeah and and the amazing part of it is that the unfortunate part of it is that uh, when we did go back we were we would fly because by now they were the old c-47s were becoming uh, common in, in, in aviation the old two-engine aircraft that the military used to use uh, we used to call them a dakota or a c3 and so we would go home for the in the winter months and you would say why in the winter months well the school, uh, there was no heat in the buildings in the school, and the temperature at 7,600 feet can be pretty cold in the wintertime. So rather than you suffer, our winter vacation, our summer vacation was in the wintertime. It was just the opposite, mm -hmm. because if you went down to Calcutta, the temperature would be 82 degrees in the, in the wintertime, whereas the temperature of the school might be 24 degrees. and so. They used to, they, they, they turned the... That elevation uh, played the, a The elevation role. decided when you Is had that school still in operation? Yes. And so what this headmaster did, his name was Leslie Goddard, fantastic person. He would find us homes for those three, three winter months uh -huh. that we would go and live with those families whose children were also going to that school. And so in my book, I have a picture of the, the, uh, the B family and his name was Mr. LSB. He had a son who also was going to school. So, and they raised uh, pigs for bacon and uh, milk from cows and all that. So we would go stay with them, and they would give us these little piglets when we first started. Our our responsibility was to raise those piglets mm -hmm. and clean them in three months. Well, in, in three months they were huge, huge, and yeah. ready for the <laughs> slaughter. So, uh, all of our life was very controlled. And, and to say that uh, we would forget our parents, it would be a common thing for, for people to criticize. And in fact, my, my father and mother used to say that their friends were telling them, you're making a huge mistake mm -hmm. sending your children away at such a young age. They will forget you. How many years total were you in that school? I was there for six years. And in the six years, I, I, I went home once. One time? Yeah, because at the, at the end of the second... And how long was the duration? Uh, it would be three months. And what was that like, the reunion? Well, well it was the uh, first time we went there, we completely forgot the language. My grandmother only spoke Assyrian uh -oh. and Turkish. Yeah. And so uh, 
after you're home for about a month, you slowly begin to, some of those words begin to come back. So we would, spoke in, we would speak in English to my mother and father <laughs> and try to... That must have been a new... It was a new experience yeah. for us, and so, uh, but uh, the, the most important part to me is the sacrifice that my parents needed to make in order for their sons to get a decent education. Right. They did not feel that the schools in Iran would prepare us for, for future life and, 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 and uh, go to college. So. Uh, that was the main reason why they had had it because of their exposure to the American Presbyterian missions. Education uh, became a high uh, high priority yeah. in their lives, and so even if even today, as you look at your parents or my parents, anybody else, the first thing they thought about is their children's education. Right. No question about yeah, it. My parents are, you know, since I was born, have been like, you know, you need to get get good grades and do yeah. well in school and get yes. a college degree. Exactly. Even if you don't like what you're doing, even if you don't find the major you want, you know, get that degree. Yeah. But if you if you go back to 1920, when a lot of Assyrians began to finally, because of the Exodus situations, a lot of Assyrians began came to America. These were not educated people, so they were dishwashers in restaurants, or mm -hmm. they uh, learned how to paint something where you didn't need an education to learn how to use a brush or something like that. But they, they realized the value of an education, and right. so they would, they would ingrain that in their children at home, and in the, the early Assyrian churches that were established in uh, uh, New Britain, Connecticut, and Yonkers, New York, and then later in, in um, uh, Chicago area, and also, um, let's see, it was in, in Michigan, I guess it was, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the town, where there was a lot of Assyrians in that I can't think of the name right this second. But in all of these situations, the parents were pushing their children Detroit. to get an education. Yeah. Detroit area, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so... So speaking of education, let's, let's travel down a little bit chronologically because mm -hmm. I know that your story ended up taking a, a huge turn. I think you went to England for a bit of time, the UK. And then somehow you end up in California, mm -hmm. and then you end up at an amazing school in California, mm -hmm. and you get to study what you love. Mm -hmm. So talk talk us through that. Yeah. Well, uh, as we were approaching my uh, uh, the end of my schooling in, in Darjeeling, my father would be writing, and also remember this. I'll be talking a lot about my father because. The man was the head of the family in the Middle East, whether you were a Christian or whether you were a non-Christian. And so all decisions were basically made by the man. Right. But in this case, uh, my mother was definitely involved because um, she was an educated person yeah. in, to a degree. She so, was a nurse. She was a nurse, yes. And so he would, my dad would write to me and say, like, he would say, uh, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I would say, uh, or, or what would you like to study in college when you when you graduate from St. Paul's? I'd say, well, I really don't know. And then he would write back and say, well, well tell me some of the things that you like to do. I'd say, well, I, I'm interested in photography. I can uh, sketch and paint paintings using watercolor. And I built a model of our chapel with cardboard. And then the letter, with the response would be, well, what about architecture? And I said, well, I don't know anything about architecture. 
So in his mind, uh, he thought that architecture would be a good subject for me because of my interest in photography, art, and, mm -hmm. and uh, hand, hand skills to build something like a building. So um, after the Second World War, as you know, the Marshall Plan was established for Europe where they got economic help from the U.S. to rebuild all the industries, especially in Germany. They were just bombed to shreds. And so, to, and then so Truman was president after the Second World War, and so he established a plan called the Point Four program for the Middle East, where if students wanted to come to America to get to go to college, you could get dollar exchange at a much lower rate than the bank would give you. So they were basically subsidizing the value of the dollar to the parents of the children. So as a result of that, my father found out a. And find, found the office for the Point Four program in Tehran, mm -hmm. and I still remember the name of the gentleman, but Mr. Hulock was his name. He was in charge, and uh, so he probably spoke to him about what can my children do? How do we find a school for them, and so on in America? So he obviously had catalogs of different schools and universities, and uh, they filled out applications for me to go to uh, to three different schools. That's what I'm told. And uh, I was accepted by two of them. One was in the mid Midwest somewhere, and I don't remember the name of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was. And the other one was Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. <laughs> Cal Poly was, in those days, it was called California State Polytechnic College. That mm -hmm. was the name. And so uh, and the rationale for selecting Cal Poly was that he had heard that there were Syrians living in Turlock. Mm. And that the, the latitude of Turlock was 34 degrees north of the equator, which was similar to the latitude of the Assyrians that lived in Urmi, which was 34 degrees north. Mm. So they thought, well, grapes, the grapes grow well in Iran, what, they must also grow, grow well in Turlock. So the decision was made that I should go to Cal Poly and not the other school, because he, Dad really didn't know much about America. When you're, when you're working for the British, you learn about the British Empire. So, so your dad sends you off, and then when you get done with school in India, mm -hmm. he's already ready to send you off to the next oh, place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went back to Iran, and then the, the revolution was taking place. This was in 19, uh, uh, let's see, 1950. I was in, in Iran in 1953, and Mossadegh was trying to take over the government from the Shah. And so... Uh, while that was going on, uh, they kicked the Shah out of the country, mm -hmm. and of course, there was a political turmoil. That must have happened a couple times, right? Yeah, it, it happened later yeah, down, okay. Late, yeah, the, the revolution, the second revolution was in 79. Mm -hmm. This was in 53. So as soon as, uh, and I understand, the CIA, along with the British equivalent agency, they were able to, to get a hold of Mossadegh and send him to South Africa to put him under house house arrest over there and, and they brought the Shah back. So that means the airport was open for operation again. So Dad said, you're not going to stay in this country. The first airplane that arrives, I'm going to ship you to England. And so I, I went to Leeds University School of Architecture. Leeds is north of London by about 200 miles or so. And so in the, in the, in the interim, I had to get my passport all straightened out to get a a student visa to come to America. So you did get accepted to Cal Poly. Yes. And then you were in the interim, you went to a kind of a temporary school in the UK? Well, no, before, yes. Uh, it was with temporary, it was, it was, I was exposed to architecture in England initially. 
and it's very basic stuff, learning about uh, Roman lettering and how you incise them and shades and shadows, a little bit of photography. Drafting. Work, drafting type of work, yeah. you know. Uh, and so uh, once I got my problem straightened out with the passport, that was really an amazing thing because there were diplomatic relations between Iran and England were were terminated because of the oil situation. The Mossadegh wanted to take the oil company over and have them be 100% ownership instead of the British, the way they, they would pay. The British put their money, they developed the oil and built the refineries, and the Iran was getting a percentage of whatever they were selling. Well, now he wanted to terminate that agreement and say, it's all Iranian oil, out. We don't want you in, in this country mm. anymore to England. So anyway, uh, uh, as a result, I was stuck in England. I went to, the, uh, to Manchester, England, to the, the American consulate. He said, well, your passport needs to be validated for two, two years beyond the uh, expiration date of the passport before I can give you a visa to go to America. I said, well, how do I do that? He said, well, you have to send this to the Swedish embassy in London. They will send it to the Iranian embassy in Stockholm, and then they will extend your, your time on your passport, then it'll come back to you, and then after when you get your passport, then you come to me and I'll give you your student visa to go to America. Well, this took about four months, and I was frustrated because why should it take four months to do such a thing, not realizing how politics can control our lives right. at, at that age? I had no idea what it was all about. So anyway, I had already pre-booked my, my, my travel to go to, to New York. And so the passport, I was able to finish all that work a week before my, my ship left. Oh, okay. So it was, it was very touchy. So you took a ship from... I took a ship from Liverpool, England, mm -hmm. and we stopped in Cork, Ireland, uh, which is uh, well known for its lace, and these ladies were coming to sell you Irish lace. And I was not interested in Irish lace. I was interested in getting to New York. <laughs> and then from there we went to uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's right. And Isn't that from, a beautiful from, from there, yeah. From there we run into some real rough seas from there to New York. I mean, the ship was... Well, these waves were 30 and 40 feet high. Well, when the ship was on the, on the crest of the wave, you could feel the vibration of the propellers. The whole ship would shake, and then you'd go back down and so forth. So anyway, I arrived in New York, and my mother had a half-sister by the name of Mabel Syed. Last name was Syed. And so um, she, she came to meet me. My father had been communicating with her. She came to meet me at the airport. Uh, excuse me, at the uh, at the dock where the ship was. I didn't know what Mabel looked like, and she didn't know what I looked like. So how do you how do you know how to find your relative? Uh -oh. And so all these people are getting off the ship, and there's all these other people, friends waiting for them. Well, suddenly I saw this lady just kind of looking around, and, and so our eyes were, were fixed on each other, and we realized. This must be the Mabel, Aunt, Aunt Mabel. This has got to be Aunt Mabel. So I went up to her. I said, "Are you are you Mabel Syed?" She said, "Yes." Oh, I said, "Give her a hug." You know, <laughs> it's it's a very very odd situation because you're just a little student. I was 18 years yeah. old. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Oh what my it's goodness! Like, you know, so completely and like. So she she helped me find my suitcase, and we got on a we went to her house and. Uh, 
uh, so I spent three or four days in New York. She took time off to show me all the sites of New York. We went to the uh, Rockefeller Plaza. We went to the Empire State Building. We went to the United Nations Building and uh, so forth. So then from there, I took the train to Chicago. And again, I was met by relatives. I had no idea who they were, but they found me. And I later on found out, one of them said to me, we noticed you walked off the train with this T-square in your hand. He said, oh, that's got to be him. He's the one that's going to study architecture. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that's... You carried that thing around with you? Yeah. Well, it was a... In fact, I still have it somewhere. I uh -huh. forgot where it's at. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I spent another four more days in Chicago. And one of the relatives, Jerry James, very nice person. Uh, he was a... I think he, was, he wasn't a developer then, but he was a major painting contractor or a plastering contractor. And so... I was invited to the houses of one of the, the relatives, and she, she in turn invited all the other relatives. They wanted to see this, this cousin from the old country, and they thought I would, I would probably didn't, would know how to speak English. Well, I, I spoke English with a British accent. That mm -hmm. completely surprised them all, you know. And I had, I had these British clothes. My jacket had one of these leather, uh, what do you call them, on your... On your elbows they have oh, patch little patches yeah. so that you don't wear your clothes on oh, you have okay. the le leather patches you know and apparently that evening he approached uh, my my cousin Mary Khoshaba was her name so he gave her $500 he said go buy this kid some american clothes and and he was he must have noticed I look a little different from everybody else in the room, you know. Well, five hundred dollars was a lot of money in nineteen fifty four. That's a lot of, a money, lot of money for a wardrobe. Yeah, for a wardrobe. Well, Mary and I went shopping, and she bought me all kinds of clothes. Oh my so, gosh! So, so you're coming out of there looking GQ. Yeah, and so. <laughs> Then I took the train from there to L.A. Mm -hmm. and then changed trains and we went up the West Coast, up to San Luis Obispo. And, uh, How uh, many years were you at Cal Poly? I, was, I, I spent actually four years and one quarter over there because I arrived for the winter quarter. Uh, I arrived in, in January 54 and I, could, I should have graduated with a class of the 53, which would have been, uh, you know, four years later, but because I was there late, I had to go an extra quarter to finish up Cal Poly. So I graduated in June of 1958. My mother and uh, my brother and Jeanette, my wife-to-be, were all over there. How did you see. wait? How did you meet Jeanette? Was that arranged? I met, I met Jeanette in Turlock. I used to spend my summer months in the in Turlock. The while first, you were at Cal Poly. While I was in Cal Poly, the first summer I found a job at, at a cannery, Hume's Cannery in Turlock, and I used to unload cans from railroad boxcars, yeah. and, and they would go into the cannery. Uh, and then uh, I, she used to sing in the choir in the, the, the Assyrian Presbyterian Church in Turlock. That's where I met her. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, I've explained all this in my book, incidentally. It talks about me, how, how I met Jeanette oh, okay. and so forth. And so uh, uh, then I, then the second, second summer from Cal Poly, I found a job in an architect's office in Modesto, and I worked for Ken Kastner. Uh, and he so he, I had uh, three summer jobs in a row in his office, and he finally offered me a full-time position when I graduated from Cal Poly. But then uh, after we got married, which was in 1959, mm -hmm. I approached my wife, Jeanette. I said, honey, it's time uh, we settle my immigration status. I'm still on a student visa, and I'm marrying an American citizen. 
So she was an American she citizen. Was, she was born in Philadelphia. Jeanette was born in Philadelphia. Her parents also came from Iran. That she she they got here early then. Well, yeah, they were way before they came in the twenties. I think you know, nineteen hmm. twenties. And then they went to Philadelphia. And that's they went a to story Philadelphia. In and of yeah. Oh yeah, that's another story. He had a he had a little uh, grocery store. They used to sell you know like neighborhood grocery yeah. stores. What we call like Seven Elevens today. Mm -hmm. That type of a store. So uh, I said, well, uh, I think I'm going to have to go see the immigration department. So I went to San Francisco uh, and uh, found the immigration department. And they said, well, you have to fill out a form called Declaration of Intention. And it says, well, I'm so who I am. I want to become an American citizen because I'm, I'm married to one. Mm -hmm. and, but I didn't know that the immigration department notified the draft board that we have this young man who is, wants to become an American citizen. I was 24 years old at the time, much older than a typical draftee in the army, which would have been 18 or 19 years old. Well, next thing I know, eight months later, I got a, a, a notice that you're drafted in the army. Uncle Sam needs you. Uh-oh. I'm saying, wait a minute, I'm not even a U.S. citizen. How come? I didn't have any choice. I went into the army. So uh, Jeanette was just staggered because she says, I'm, I'm going to lose my husband. I just married him, you know. Well, it turned out that um, I got a job. I mean, I was transferred to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, which is about 15 miles south of Washington, D.C., and Jeanette joined me, and she, she was a legal secretary in, Turl in Modesto, and so she applied for a job in the Judge Advocate General's office called JAG and as a legal secretary. So she found a job over there, and so... We lived in Alexandria, Virginia, and I used to ride, the, there was a bunch of other soldiers that also lived off post. Mm -hmm. We used to carpool together to the base, and then Jeanette used to take the bus to the Pentagon. And Pentagon had 30,000 people working in it. It was not, a, it was a small city. So that, that went on until... Uh, How many years were you in the military? Two years and four months. The, the four months. The four months was when the Berlin Wall went up. Oh. Uh, they were afraid that we'd have a war with Russia, so they extended everybody's time that was already in the military. So that was extended for well, my time was extended four months. Well, that was finally resolved with the airlift in Berlin. They were able to supply the food to them, and they kind of settled the issue temporarily. Uh, and then uh, uh, after that, uh, we came back to. Turlock again. For and you started doing your architecture then, work no, I went to work back to Ken Kastner. So I, I worked for him for about, let's see, I got out in 62, and I I worked for him for two years, and I looked for better opportunities for work, and I was looking either at the Bay Area or the Sacramento area. I knew quite a few of my classmates that were in both in Sacramento and the Bay Area, but for some reason we figured that Sacramento would be a little easier place to get around. The prices would be less, housing and travel and all that kind of stuff. To come and visit our parents in Modesto and Turlock was about a, an hour and a half to two hour drive. Bay Area would have been a whole different animal. So that's, that's how we moved to Sacramento. And my first daughter, Alice Lisa, was born in Turlock in the old Emanuel Hospital mm -hmm. on Canal Drive. And so she was born. And then Alice and my second daughter was born in Sacramento. So we, we stayed in Sacramento for 35 years. And then when, we, when I retired in 1999, we moved to Turlock. And by that time, of course, my daughters had already gone to college and they were living their lives in the Bay Area. 
and uh, and so life started all over again uh, until uh, Jeanette developed cancer and unfortunately her life was terminated in 19, uh, uh, 2003 and so it's been 14 years since uh, she's passed but uh, life has take some strange turns and and I had to I had to figure out some way to keep busy because you cannot we were married for 44 years which was a long time and so what do you do to keep busy and uh, I remember one day I was driving back from San Francisco to Sacramento <coughs> I was listening to KCBS uh, radio station 740 on the AM dial and Al Hart was interviewing the editor of a elderly magazine from the East Bay. And I remember the, the gentleman saying that one of the things people don't realize when they retire is they have to consider they're retiring from what to what. And it's a bit of a myth, isn't it? It, yeah, it is. And so retirement is not something that just happens. You have to plan for it. I said to myself, well, then in that case, I better have a plan of attack. How am I going to, how am I going to do this? And so um, then I found out that uh, the actuarial tables in the insurance companies say that if a person retires at age 65 and he doesn't do anything with his life in retirement, in five years he will die. Oh my goodness, wow. I said to myself, you mean to tell me I worked all my life to live for five years? That's impossible, it's not gonna happen. So after Jeanette passed away, then I said, hey, you gotta, you got to do something about this. That's when I started to think about our family. And so I went to class to learn, learn how to write this book. Mm -hmm. I went to a class called MICL, M-I-C-L, which stands for the Modesto Institute for Continued Learning. It's like continued education. Sure. And all the members were retirees, whether they were teachers or lawyers or whoever they were. And so... Uh, that became a, a wonderful avenue to keep me active and busy. And in the process, I learned the class that I took was uh, memoir writing. I learned how to, what I thought was, I knew how to write, but I, I actually didn't know how to write. And then I also went to the Apple store to learn how to use the iMac computer in order to put the information into this book that I wouldn't know how to do in the first place, you know. So anyway, uh, it's life has been very, very interesting. Um, I'm glad that my daughters, we brought their daughters up in a Christian way. They all, both went to college, they graduated, they're married. So thinking about the big picture and just understanding your own Assyrian ties and roots and from the old country and then going to India and then England and then coming to the U.S. and meeting strangers in New York who are actually family and they treat you like family in a $500 bill to go buy a new outfit. Um, and then you're going to go to Cal Poly, which now is known to be one of the best schools for architecture, right? Uh, and you've worked on some pretty huge projects. Um, I think you told me not too long ago you were even kind of consulting on the Bay Bridge bike yeah, lanes or yeah, something. Yeah, I've, I've skipped over a lot of stuff, of yeah. course. I've, well, it's after, in the book, right? <laughs> yes, it's in the book. After I uh, retired, I was contacted by an engineering company in San Francisco to work with them on, a, on an interim basis on the uh, design of the new east spans of the Bay Bridge. Uh, in 1979, 
the Loma Prieta earthquake damaged the Bay Bridge and mm. the eastern spans, and a part part of the lower upper section fell onto the lower section, and I think there was one or two people died in, in that particular accident. But because of my familiarity with the bridge department, and at, I used to, I was working for Caltrans for the last 12 years of my life. I was actually working for Caltrans as an architect, and people didn't I didn't realize that. Uh, Caltrans also had an architectural department because uh, there were something like 380 maintenance stations up and down the state of California. And when uh, uh, the rules were changed where women were allowed to do men's jobs, uh, hard men's jobs, they had to modify all these maintenance stations to accommodate women's restroom facilities and, and, and things like that. So uh, I, I I was very honored to to be asked by this particular firm to, to join them on the Bay Bridge. Now, I didn't actually design the, the new East Spans. However, I, I, inputted, I, I gave my input on certain design features which were actually incorporated into the design. The shape of the, the piers that hold up the bridge are uh, uh, pentagon-shaped, and uh, the light poles are pentagon-shaped, and uh, there was a, a bike path which was uh, something that Caltrans had never done before. We mm -hmm. did actually designed a new bike path and a pedestrian walkway from Oakland over to Yerba Buena Island. And right now they're considering widening, not widening the bridge, but adding a bike path from the island to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it's, got, it's a much more difficult problem to resolve and lots of money and I, I don't know whether they're going to be able to do that or not. So, but anyway, I feel humbled and very grateful to have had that exposure to bridge engineering, which uh, is a whole new art that I, I didn't, didn't know anything about. With architecture. With with architecture and, 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 and bridge engineering combined as an art, it was it was very unique, and I, I learned an awful lot. And I'm still I still admire the engineering that's done on water bridges that are in high earthquake zones, like mm. the the. Uh, uh, the various faults that we have that run through the Bay Area, you know. So you love that stuff, don't you? Well, it's, it's it's enjoyable stuff, and so what I did, uh, I put together presentations for various organizations in the Valley because we didn't get too much news in Turlock about what was going on in San Francisco. So I was a Rotarian for many years in Sacramento, like 24 years. So. I was also a Salvation Army Advisory Board member for more than 20 years. So with, with exposure to those organizations, I was able to put presentations on to Rotary Clubs and uh, other, other service organizations in the Turlock Modesto area and even Teachers Association. So uh, I used to tell them about what was going on, on on the construction of the Bay Bridge and the design. So Jay, just for the, the listeners all around the world, the Syrian people who, who tune in, um, how did the Assyrian ethnicity help you in your travels and your journeys? How did having that Assyrian background, what, what difference did that make for you? You know, that's not an easy question to answer mm -hmm. because um, I feel it maybe it had different effects on different people in different ways. Uh, what, what to me was the most important was what our parents thought would be best to, to prepare us for an education which will take us to a university level. And so, uh, as far as the the ethnic Assyrian part, I, I give that credit to my parents mm -hmm. for 
realizing the importance of an education and sending us, my brother Nathan and I, to initially a British school and then next, my brother also went to Cal Poly, by the way, but he studied animal husbandry, which is just complete opposite <laughs> of being an architect, you know. But, uh, and then that led to him being a missionary. He's a member of the, uh, he joined the Navigators Organization mm -hmm. in Colorado Springs, and he's been a missionary all of his life. So, yeah, you, uh, you've shared a lot of about your brother and other times we've talked, and I guess for the sake of the audience, again, um, when you think of the Assyrian nation today, and you think of the Assyrian people and kind of where we're at, um, what words do you have for an Assyrian who's 30 years old today? Well, first of all, I think the family unit is very important. You have to maintain the integrity of the family unit, remembering your roots that go back a couple of thousand years. Mm -hmm. That's very important. And then uh, keeping God as, as part of your life is another very important part. And I think uh, there's evidence of that in Turlock. Anyway, we have something like five Assyrian churches, I think. Even though they have different branches of Christianity, they still feel God is the primary factor in their lives. I think that's very important. And so, and then our, our, the education is probably after that after your family or god family and then your your life education has to be a very important part and i think uh, our, our culture has because of the way the, the assyrians were always on the go and never had a, a decent opportunity to stay put in one area to educate their families particularly after the first world war uh, they realize the value of an education. And so I would say it, I'm proud to be an Assyrian, uh, also to have had the opportunity to go to school and to give me the opportunity to live in America and, and be successful in my field. I think I'm, yeah. I can say that, you know. And uh, so. I mean, you came here, you rose, raised a family, you own your own home, mm -hmm. um, you started your own business, mm -hmm. you. Did art being an architect? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're living now during a time when sometimes immigrants are are uh, cast in a negative light, mm -hmm. and yet you're somebody who made a huge impact on in America and have established kind of the, the Mirza family here. So, how does that all sit with you? Well, I'm proud. I'm proud of what has happened to mm -hmm. us, you know. But again, I'm going to go back to my beginning. The education that my parents received from the American Presbyterian missionaries yeah. in Iran yeah. is the primary driving force behind why I'm here. Mm -hmm. My parents learned from them, and they, they learned the value of an education. That's why they sent us to India, to England, and to America to make something out of ourselves. And I think we were loyal enough as children to, to realize how, much, how loving my, my family was in order to want us to succeed. And so I cannot, I cannot say enough about my parents. If, if we wanted to learn more about what happened to your parents, where did they end up going, and, and more about the story and more of the, the finer details, where can we purchase this book? How do we get our hands on it? 
Well, the book, which is called An Assyrian Dream, The Mirza Family Story, it's available through uh, Barnes & Noble, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a bookstore, and it's also available through Amazon.com, and uh, it can be purchased. Also, there's a, an e-book. E Kindle. Kindle. You yep. can, you, it's available in e-books, and you can order that and, and put it on Kindle and, and read it. And it's been a pretty good seller for you, right? Well, I'm I'm surprised. I just got a, a I just got another another, another one? check in the mail That's here. Awesome. So, uh, been, uh, they've been paying me money for what seven years mm -hmm. now, and uh, I don't know how much. It, it, the amount is not important. What's important to me is that there are people that are interested to know about your story. You know? so, yeah. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to go through the story with us a little bit. Give us a sneak peek. Well, what's interesting is that I received um, uh, some of these people that bought the book without my knowing who they were. Mm -hmm. One of them was an Assyrian family, and he wrote me a very nice email. He said, what is interesting after reading a book is that the fact that when we were growing up, our parents would be telling us these stories of the villages and all the problems we had growing up. By you documenting this in this book, has brought to life the stories that my parents wanted to tell us and we didn't listen to mm -hmm. them. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, because so, we would have been like kids and say, oh, yeah, boring yeah. stories or whatever. Yeah, because people, the Assyrians that were born in America really didn't have that appreciation of what their parents went through until, I mean, reading this book would give you, my father's story is an amazing one in itself that's in this book. Mm -hmm. Which he That's right. Wrote, it's he two wrote months. himself. Yeah. yeah, it's 170 some odd pages, and it's written in a very unique style of English. Just to just for the audience to hear, uh, there's a story of how your dad watched watched a man die, right? Oh yes. And yeah. so that'll be a that I remember reading that, and I was just like, I was struck by that story and and how it affected him. Yes. So, yes. so we don't want to give it all away. <laughs> give people opportunity to go check it out. Amazon.com, An Assyrian Dream, The Mirza Family Story by Julius W. Mirza. Jay, thank you so much for hanging out, well, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it. Thank you very much.